Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 45. This episode we take a look at what is believed to be the first story Conan Doyle submitted to a publisher, The Haunted Grange of Gorsthorpe, from circa 1877. And here's Paul to set the scene. Following a particularly atrocious multiple murder in the mid-18th century, Gorsthorpe Grange in Norfolk has stood empty and uninhabited for a century, especially given the additional stories of vengeful ghosts who can drive the inquisitive over the brink of insanity. Yet Tom Holton, a friend of the estate's young heir, has his own theories about the supernatural and wishes to test them by spending a night in the haunted Grange. At first his friend demurs, but is soon caught up in Tom's enthusiasm and together the two young men submit themselves to a terrifying ordeal. The haunted Grange of Gorsthorpe is believed to be the earliest surviving story that Conan Doyle submitted to a publisher, but we actually know very little to date when it was written. It certainly feels earlier than uh, The Mystery of Sasassa Valley, Conan Doyle's first published work, which appeared in Chambers' Edinburgh Journal in September 1879, and which we covered back in episode 29. Uh, Stylistically, there are many similarities between the two stories, not least the reuse of the names Tom and Jack for the principal characters. But Haunted Grange is a more naive and less assured work and certainly feels like early apprentice work. From internal references within the story, Owen Dudley Edwards has suggested that it was probably written around 1877 or 1878, when Conan Doyle was 18 years old and a medical student in Edinburgh. In fact, Edwards puts his own detective skills to work, Mm. observing that the manuscript is on the sort of paper issued for lecture notes or possibly for a clerk and connects this to Conan Doyle being clerk to Joseph Bell in 1878-79. Now, even if that's perhaps uh, a little fanciful, there's little reason to doubt that the story was written in the early years of Conan Doyle's medical studies. Conan Doyle then submitted the story to Blackwood's Edinburgh magazine sometime before 1880, as has been confirmed by the archive records. But it was rejected, and it never saw print. Uh, Now, unusually... The manuscript was not returned to the author, as was typically the case, and instead it languished in the Blackwood archives for decades. We can speculate on why this should be the case, uh, but uh, Occam's razor would suggest a a mistake rather than any particular special reason. Uh, For his part, Conan Doyle believed that the manuscript had been destroyed, uh, and in March 1882, when he submitted another short story to Blackwood's, this one entitled The Actor's Duel, uh, he wrote in the covering letter, I once before trespassed upon your valuable time by sending up a sketch which did not come up to your standard. I trust this may meet with a better fate. Will you do me the favour not to destroy the manuscript in case of rejection? 
And again, almost 10 years later, when he submitted uh, Uncle Jeremy's Household to Blackwoods, Conan Doyle referenced that he had previously lost a manuscript he'd sent to them. Now, unfortunately, no correspondence accompanies the manuscript of Haunted Grange. And so at that point, the trail runs cold. But we leap forward then uh, 60 years or so to 1942, uh, when the manuscript was transferred to the National Library of Scotland, along with the Blackwood family and business papers. And there it seems to have lain largely unnoticed until the 1980s, when it was referenced in the Gibson and Green bibliography of Conan Doyle's works. And then in 2000, the Arthur Conan Doyle Society, the predecessor of the present ACD Society, published Haunted Grange for the first time with an expansive introduction by Owen Dudley Edwards and a preface by Ian McGowan from the National Library of Scotland. And very recently, Haunted Grange has been republished in two anthology volumes, uh, Ghosts from the Library, edited by Tony Medawar, and in South Sea Stories and Beyond, edited by Matt Wingett. But beyond this relatively modest circulation, it has been largely ignored and unstudied, although you can read it for yourself at the ever-wonderful Arthur Conan Doyle Encyclopedia, and we'll put a link to the text in the show notes. And for Conan Doyle as a Edinburgh lad, I, I would have thought it made perfect sense that he would be submitting this first story of his to uh, one of the two great Edinburgh journals. Yeah, Blackwood's magazine um, was was one of the almost intellectual foundations of of Edinburgh. Mm. Uh, several of the, the, the great literary uh, names of this period had found their way into it: James Hogg, um, George Eliot, uh, Anthony Trollope. Mm. Uh, all these 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 great names and and Blackwood's had a, a real standing. I mean, so much so that one of Doyle's great heroes, Edgar Allan Poe, across <laughs> the Atlantic, was was able to um, to write a a spoof story, um, which which we'll we'll discuss later. How to write a Blackwood's article? <laughs> but but um, Doyle was very focused on this particular magazine for a long time. It was the you know if he been able to get himself in that as, as his first publication you know the prestige would have been enormous um mm. but as we know obviously this this uh, story was sent off to blackwoods and um well it wasn't even formally rejected as we say it just uh, disappeared into the archives and mm. one of the speculations is that he might not even have put a return address yes he kept trying as as you've said to to get into blackwoods but um there was only only one story he ever actually got published in the magazine, which was A Physiologist's Wife. His actual first published story, he submitted to Chambers, mm. Blackwood's Great Edinburgh Rival, and that is ended up being his, his, his first publication. And Chambers was still regarded with a degree of fondness by people, but, but it didn't quite have the, um, the, the, the prestige of Blackwood's. Um, so, so Doyle didn't quite get that launch. Um, but getting into Chambers is, was enough to, yes. to give him a bit of a kickstart. And uh, his real kickstart came when he got into one of the other great literary magazines, the Cornhill. Yes. Um, yeah. With J. Habakkuk Jefferson's statement. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's this prestige thing with Blackwoods. And also, he's still living in Edinburgh at this time. Yes. Almost, this is one way of getting on in Edinburgh society as well to 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 if he'd been able to get himself into blackwoods it would have given him a degree of local standing as a writer 
uh, as well as the the national and international implications of, of appearing in it. Yeah. And Owen Dudley Edwards in that 2000 volume that we mentioned earlier has a good quote about Blackwoods and Chambers, says, uh, Blackwoods compelled the respect of Edinburgh and the cultured world where, say, Chambers' Edinburgh magazine was simply publication. I think also there's this kind of personal or family connection as well. The, the background to the magazine is that it was founded by William Blackwood and Sons in 1804, and it was initially a bookseller's, but it was also the Scottish regional agent for London literary publishers like John Murray. And after 1817, when Blackwood's Edinburgh magazine first appeared, members of the family started to travel backwards and forwards to London. So they started to become a part of that same kind of literary set. Mm. And from there, you get some connection. So John Blackwood, who was um, the principal editor from about um, 45 to, well, he died in 1879. He was friendly with Dickie Doyle, we believe, with Richard Doyle. And John Blackwood was also friendly with Thackeray. And it's as a result of the Mm. friendship with Thackeray that Thackeray came to Edinburgh in uh, 1856. And you get that wonderful story that is um, Mm. passed down through the Doyle family of uh, of the young Arthur, supposedly, dandled on Mm. Thackeray's knee, when in fact it wasn't Arthur, it was probably Annette. (laughs) But there's another connection in that John Blackwood was close friends with John Hill Burton, the historiographer Mm. royal of Scotland and and, uh, noted book hunter. And um, the Burtons had put up Conan Doyle, with or without his parents, we're not entirely sure, in the early 1860s when the Doyles had hit upon hard times. And at that time, Conan Doyle was living at uh, Liberton Bank House with Mm. Burton's sister Mary and his son, William, or Willie Burton, who was a longtime friend of his, would eventually go to Japan. And we talked about him in connection with Jelen's voyage on uh, episode 20. And ultimately, Conan Doyle would uh, dedicate the firm of Girdleston to mm. his good friend, Willie Burton, as well. So there's always been the suggestion that there's a connection from John Hill Burton as a possible promoter of the young Conan Doyle to John Blackwood. Mm. Yeah, so um, given those those literary connections, you can see almost why why Doyle is is um, sort of setting his hat uh, at, at getting into Blackwoods. Mm. Um, it's, it's quite strange in many ways, though, with with Blackwoods magazine, because as we've said, it has this higher literary standing than than Chambers's journal. Mm. But at the same time, Blackwoods is also well known for gothic and sensational yes. stories, yeah. um, which we usually look down on in this era. But but for yes. some reason, Blackwoods seems to have this prestige, and, and even getting these sort of stories mm. into Blackwoods is is, is prestigious. Um, mm. And this, this is this is sort of what Edgar Allan Poe is pointing at yes. um, with, with his his spoof essay. How to Write a Blackwood Article, which first appeared in the American Museum in 1838. Mm. And in this, you have a rather unhinged female <laughs> female writer, uh, Zenobia Psyche, <laughs> uh, who also known as uh, Suki Snobs, um, <laughs> who wants to get an article into, into Blackwoods and has a long discussion um, with, with, with the editor. And he's mm. explaining the particular... Um, scrapes that her character could get into um, <laughs> in, in, involving the usual burial alive being caught up in a bell or an oven and <laughs> it, it's 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 the usual sort of poe 
pushing his humour that bit bit too much. Um, it, it doesn't quite hang together. But it, it is interesting that at that point, Blackwoods has obviously got this reputation. Yes. I, I don't actually know if, if Poe himself tried to submit well, you backwards. you would suspect. Uh, I mean, it has the mark of something uh, of somebody who maybe had been rejected. <laughs> yeah, and, and and he he you know he spent part of his uh, formative years in Scotland, so he yes. again he would probably be familiar with the prestige of Blackwoods from from then. Yes. Um, but this also then with with this this sort of story being seen as Blackwoods Fair uh, would possibly also explain why Conan Doyle would push this uh, this ghost story mm. Mm. towards Blackwoods thinking oh it it uh, this this will fit nicely um and obviously it either got lost or the editor just didn't agree yeah and one does wonder if Conan Doyle took it particularly personally that he didn't get into Blackwoods with the haunted grange of Gorsthorpe he actually tried I think it's eight or nine times to get into Blackwoods. And as was the case in, in those days, he started quite high up the food chain with Blackwoods and then eventually the stories might be accepted lower down uh, and you got stories like Uncle Jeremy's Household appearing in the boy's own paper. One of his great Gothic short stories, um, The Surgeon of Gasterfell, was submitted to Blackwoods and rejected and also picked up by Chambers instead. Uh, but as you said, you know, he, he he managed to get in with a physiologist's wife, finally breached the stout Scottish barrier of, uh, of Blackwoods <laughs> with that story. But then the boot was then on the other foot. By then, Conan Doyle was becoming, um, you know, an important new writer. And uh, William Blackwood III expressed interest in 1890 in publishing The White Company, um, only to discover that it had been taken by the Cornhill, who serialized it throughout 1891. And um, it does feel almost a little petulant on Conan Doyle's part that actually at the moment in which uh, Blackwood's come knocking, he turns around and says, sorry, you can't have it. It's mm. gone somewhere else. And, and you've also got this this period, and, and particularly the, you know, the 1880s, 1890s, a growth in more of these sort of publishers. Blackwoods was was facing greater competition. Yeah, good point. Um, from from New London publishers uh, who who were able to offer greater rewards at times. Hmm. So let's delve a, a little bit deeper into this uh, ghost story that Conan Doyle submitted to Blackwoods, and uh, it it has a kind of naive charm to it. Uh, but one of the most abiding characteristics of it is that it has this kind of almost campfire storytelling style to it. Yeah, I mean, if, if you just look at the uh, the opening paragraphs, you're straight away in that sort of tradition. Looking back now at the events of my life, that one dreadful night looms out like some great landmark. Even now, after the lapse of so many years, I cannot think of it without a shudder. All minor incidents and events I mentally classify as occurring before or after the time when I saw a ghost. Yes, saw a ghost. Don't be incredulous, reader. Don't sneer at the phrase. Though I can't blame you, for I was incredulous enough myself once. However, hear the facts of my story before you pass a judgment. 
it, it it's classic <laughs> around the fire stuff and and yeah. and you know the, the the fact that he's he's addressing the reader direct um the, there's a, a definite you know, as you've said before this is prentice work this yes. there's, there's, <laughs> this, there's a naivety to it it's something he would actually often stay with but develop you know so you've got micah clark hmm. is set in the uh, long time ago storytelling uh, mm. thing. and across the Brigadier Gerard story. Yes, absolutely. Or the Brigadier in a cafe recounting his stories. But Doyle very quickly uh, learns sophistication mm. with how to do this sort of writing here. It's, oh, it, it's just, it's there, clunky. There is, it's very clunky, very, um, very much like the, the, the work of a trainee writer yeah. uh, and also harks back um, to to the the days he talks about in um, memories and adventures at Stonyhurst. Yes, um, yeah. when he would actually you know tell stories to his his fellow pupils and break off at the uh, the, the the classic cliffhanger moment <laughs> and and demand payment down in buns or tarts or whatever it may be <laughs> um, until before they hear the, uh, the the next episode i mean he would he would stick with that as well yes the, the classic example of course is Mr. Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound. <laughs> yes. Tune in next for next week it's it's that kind of thing, but in this story you're getting the beginnings of it and yes. Uh, he, you know, he would probably have been very pleased himself that it just sat in the archives. Oh, I should think so. Um, and and he'd be probably quite horrified that that in the two <laughs> thousands it's back in print. Um, but it it is absolutely fascinating to see the development um, of his style and and also his own at this point lack of a degree of self criticism. Yeah. To think that this is worthy of going into Blackwoods. Yeah, it's quite a, it's it's quite a claim, isn't it? When you look at what else is in Blackwoods at the time. I mean, the the other thing I'd say is that you know, to your point about this being, you know, early work and him quickly developing his style. Mm. Owen Dudley Edwards makes a really good point that if you compare the opening paragraph of the Mystery of Sasassa Valley mm. to to the opening paragraph of Haunted Grange, you've already seen a leap forward. So mm. in in Haunted Grange. The narrator basically says, I've seen a ghost. I'm going to tell you about when I mm. saw a ghost. And in um, Sasasa Valley, it's it's more something strange happened to me and I don't quite know what it was, but I'm going to recount it to you. Mm. And, you know, he's already spinning up the mystery. He's not giving away what is entirely going to happen. Mm. Um, there's, there's a bit more of a, a, a maturity even then. And that could be maybe less than 12 months after he wrote this. Yeah, he... he- He'd have been far better off with this one. I, I, I think I saw. Yes, exactly. Just that little would, twist would exactly. have just made it that that bit a bit less campfire. Yes, and the other the other thing that um, uh, Owen Dudley Edwards points out in in his introduction is the characters of um, the narrator and um, one of the protagonists there of Tom and Jack. And as I said at the beginning, you know, Tom and Jack are the names also of the characters in Sasasa Valley. Mm. Edwards talks about um, them being almost Holmes and Watson prototypes, but not in the sense of them being, you know, a detective and, mm. and, and his assistant, but that kind of bond of friendship mm. um, and and the kind of different types of, um, you know, the, the two characters who are in tension against each other. There's a very explicit mm. 
um, tension here, actually, which is really interesting, which is the fact that you've got Tom is said to have uh, a German education, Mm -hmm. which makes him naturally more inclined (laughs) to the sort of um, romantic, I think, Um, Mm. you know, the romantic and the imaginative, whereas Jack, the narrator, is uh, uh, is described by Tom as one of these credo quad tango medical <laughs> who walk in the narrow path of certain fact. So you get you get this nice tension between the two. But similarly, you get you know Tom Tom uh, as he's musing on his problems is uh, puffing on a long briar root pipe, <laughs> um, and uh, the description is he was uh, surrounded by a dense wreath of smoke from the midst of which his voice issued like the Oracle of Delphi, while his stalwart figure loomed through the haze, which is you know, pretty nice stuff for a, for a newcomer. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and it, it's, it's um, prefiguring another more famous character, Conan Doyle was, uh, was to come up with not too, not too long afterwards. Indeed. Um, and, and, and you've also got in this the, something which again will continue actually throughout Doyle's fiction is self-identification. Yes. Um, uh, and you've got these two characters, but they are also both aspects of Doyle himself. Yeah, very much so. so. You've got the medical student side, the, the, the empiricist, but then you've got the, uh, you say, the German-educated romantic side. And, of course, Doyle himself had been to Feldkirk not mm-hmm. long before this and imbued himself with a certain degree of, of, of German language and culture. So he's he's doing that thing which 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 all authors do is is digging from within himself yes um to create his characters but he would he would carry on doing this he would throughout his career and it's a way of of spinning out his own inner dilemmas really yeah. uh, and letting the characters wrestle with these issues yes and there's there's a there's a very telling line on that actually at one point where he, um you know, Tom's only fault was that he had acquired a strange speculative way of thinking from his German education. And this led to continual arguments between us, for I had been trained as a medical student and looked at things, therefore, from an eminently practical point of view. Mm. And that really does sound like actually uh, left brain, right brain. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's that kind of tension, isn't it? Mm. Mm. The other thing that's quite interesting about the story is that it's not set in the present day even though the mm. um you know that sort of tension between the the, the romantic and the medical mm. it feels like it should be coming out of the 1870s 80s it, he actually sets this story in the 1840s he's mm. um and i wonder if that's a kind of unconscious nod to the sort of fiction that was influencing the likes of poe and uh, bulwer listen as we'll come on to in a bit yeah, he's he's in a way uh, prefiguring what what um, M. R. James would 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 later suggest as as the ideal period in which to set a ghost story, which is some thirty years or so in the past. <laughs> yes. So it's near enough for people to be able to identify with the period, but also far enough away for it to already start to be the past mm. and, and it, you know, the, 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 the ghost or the origins of the ghost can lie, lie there. Although the, the origins of this ghost lie a century before the, the story is set. And, and even this is, is interestingly prefigurative because you've, you've got the, um, the, the, the time of the murder, mm. which is the origins of the ghost in this. It's, 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 it's set in the, 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 the 45. Mm. 
and we get the mention of of um, the, the 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 murderer sort of got away with it because the country's attention was focused on on um, Bonnie Prince Charlie's yes. march on London. Um, so you, you've got this event happening to the background of great events in the country. You get this later with the origin story of the Hand of the Baskervilles. <laughs> yes, you do. Which is set at the time of the, uh, of, the of the English Civil Wars in the 1640s. Yeah. And so I mean, this this minor tragedy is played out in the background of, of the national tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. You get, mm. in fact, the line, as soon as I read it, I thought, oh, my goodness, there's Sir Hugo. Uh, mm. the, the actual, the line is, uh, the last tenant, as I discovered from my family papers, was a certain Godfrey Marsden a villain of the first water. He lived there about the middle of last century and was a byword of ferocity and brutality throughout the whole countryside. Finally, he consummated his many crimes by horribly hacking his two young children to death and strangling their mother. The Sir Hugo stuff is so much more subtle yes. <laughs> than this, um, which, which does have a tendency to go for the, uh, go for the jugular, mm. really. Yeah, it's it's uh, with with all this 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 use of of legendary and and um, these sort of elements uh, in these stories, it, it's it's perhaps worthwhile to to you know speculate upon why he chose a ghost story mm. as his first story to to submit. I mean, we 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 know he was interested in a number of of different genres um you've got the ghost story um adventure story the crime story Mm -hmm. these are all all in the air very much at the time but he's obviously chosen a ghost story specifically as his first submission um in a way i I wonder if it's because you can always feel safe with a ghost story and yes audiences are always going to enjoy a good ghost story but that's the thing, a good ghost story. <laughs> and translating the ghost story from this sort of format that he's used, the um, the, the, the kind of campfire version, mm. the oral tradition version, into something rather more sophisticated, which is more what Blackwoods is, is, is doing with their stories. This, this is where the, 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 the leap is going to have to happen. Yes. Uh, just, just choosing a ghost story because ghost stories yeah, kind of make good copy. Uh, isn't isn't quite enough so you, you you've got this going on um and you can see from the stories he's then producing subsequently uh he, he does a whole string of stories um along the you know the adventure bret hart sort of lines yes um but his first published story sasasa valley is actually a mix yes it is adventure story and a kind of ghost story. Yeah. Um, so he'd, he'd learned his lessons. Uh, and also, he, after this, you, he might have gone back to some of his influences to study more closely. Mm. Um, and you, you can see with, with this story, probably one of the big influences is Bulwer-Lytton's The Haunted and the Haunters. Mm. Or the house and the brain, yeah. Uh, which which was the, probably um, the uh, the great uh, Victorian ghost story. It very much provided a blueprint, yes, for a lot of what came afterwards. And interestingly, was uh, published in Blackwoods in 1859, the year of Doyle's birth. So it's all very fitting, yeah. But that has the the, the, the classic setup of the haunted house and the investigators yeah um, so yeah. in it you've got a house in in um, Oxford Street area yeah 
uh, is has this reputation of being haunted. The narrator. Oh, I'd like to go and investigate that. Yes, his manservant who has investigated haunted houses in Germany with him. Yes, yeah. joins in, um, and and they have a night where all sorts of of mm. weird and terrifying things happen. Mm. Um, I mean, that the house itself um, may have been based on the the the, the story of um, Number Fifty Berkeley Square. Yes, um, which was one of the most famous Victorian. Haunted houses. Yeah. Um, num- numerous legends s- surround it. You know, there's, I think there's a story of two sailors spent the night there, and one dies, one goes mad. Yes. Or, or there's, there's a family takes it over, and the the maid goes off into a room, and she comes back stark, staring mad, and yes. Yes. dies the next day. All these classic elements of of, of the ghost story um, are, are in this re- reworked in in Bullwitten's. Mm. Um, story and it it is a huge influence and um and and Doyle himself in Through the Magic Door um in nineteen oh seven would describe it as the very best ghost story I know. Mm. So he was certainly familiar with it. Mm. But he hadn't quite learned how to put the elements no. together. No. I I mean and and Haunted and the Haunters itself is quite a rich meal isn't it mm. I mean, there are a lot of incidents in it but there are also some very big connections between that story and haunted grange you can sort of see mm. the echoes of it there's this mysterious death of a dog in both yes. <laughs> you know, the superficial level you've got this kind of thing going on as well but you also get obviously this idea that the 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 last tenant was brutally murdered mm. um in the same location as well but you've also got that kind of that that setup right at the beginning about I'm going to recount a recent experience. Mm. Um, so uh, I think you're probably onto something in that he he probably goes for the um, ghost story as his first submission because there are certain rules around ghost stories. Mm. Um, and um, Haunted and the Haunters is one of those ones that sort of <laughs> already is taking it to eleven. Um. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's 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 also uh, it, it's it's a strange story in that that it's often been published in two different forms mm. in that the, there is in its full version an epilogue in which a lot of what goes on in the house are explained when the narrator meets yes. a mysterious Rosicrucian in London and then a lot of what goes on is explained sometimes because this is overly occult yes in its in its explanation it's it's sometimes omitted um, and and the story ends just with the haunted house story. Yes. Um, but this this was uh, again Bulwer Lytton was was hugely interested in in occultism and Rosicrucianism himself, um, and did did other works that are more even more occult. Thinking of things like um, Zanoni and a strange story. Yes. Yeah. Um, Bulwer Lytton was often open to being spoofed. Yes. <laughs> very easily. Um, but but. Um, all this was in the air, and and we know, you know, Young Doyle was very interested in in this this field. Uh, and again, there's something experimental going on with with the haunted Grange of Gorsthorpe. He's he's working his way through. Yes, I, I I think the haunted and the haunters has quite a profound influence on on Conan Doyle as well. Mm, there are mm. there are some things that sort of go into his psyche. I think in Haunted and Haunters, you have this whole idea about um, the narrator who is this hardened rationalist 
but he is mm. comfortable with the idea that there are things in nature that are not understood. Mm. Uh, there's actually a, a, a terrific quote in the story, which is, you know, now my theory is that the supernatural is the impossible and that what is called supernatural is only a something in the laws of nature of which we have been hitherto ignorant. Mm. Therefore, if a ghost rise before me, I have not the right to say, so then the supernatural is possible, but rather, so then the apparition of a ghost is contrary to received opinion within mm. the laws of nature. That is not supernatural. And mm. and there's another in there, which is this idea of the medium being an instrument. Still, there must be found a medium or living being with constitutional peculiarities capable mm. of obtaining these signs. And a few references there as well to to mesmerism and spiritualism. But mm. but this, I, there is something in this whole idea about you know. Uh, the supernatural is merely something that is not yet understood. Mm. That that actually is hardwired into Conan Doyle all the way through his work, and and it's almost what you've you've just described there, or just quoted there. It, it's almost like the supernatural equivalent of when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever yes. it means. However improbable must be the truth. Absolutely, you're definitely going along those lines, and this is something, as you say, he will will explore throughout. Um, but in this particular story, you've you've got these interesting ideas going on, but they're, they're not developed. Yes, in in any real sense. Uh, and we've also got and this this unfortunately is another element I think of of um, of the influence of Bulwer Lytton is some of the uh, the more cliched <laughs> tropes yes. and language. Um, around you. I mean, the, the haunted grange itself is described at one point. There it stood, cold, bleak, and desolate as ever, with the wind howling past it. Great strips of ivy, which had lost their hold upon the walls, swayed and tossed in the wind like the plumes of a hearse. It's, it's, it's <laughs> very, very cliche. And he, you know, he he later on drop yes. that sort of style. And and um, I don't think in this story that that is spoofing no it's not spoofing. It's there. he thinks it is heightening the atmosphere and you've got it, it is very much that bull it and it was a dark and stormy night yes that's what you've got going on here so the actual when they're in the house the, the, there's a storm at its height you've got the lightning lighting it all up it, it's all the classic yes stage tricks which have to be handled very carefully well yes I mean, or they land with a resounding clang yeah there was one that particularly made me laugh when i i read it again which is when they they take a piece of wallpaper and find that there's blood dripping down mm. the wall and uh, yes. the narrator says great heavens it was all freckled and spotted with gouts mm. of still mm. liquid blood even mm. as we stood gazing at it another drop fell upon yes. the floor <laughs> with a dull splash <laughs> but you know what the the strange thing about it is that for for all you have got these sort of moments of sort of uh, unalloyed pleasure in writing <laughs> these horrible moments there are some moments of subtlety in it the bit i quite like is there's a description of the passageway mm. it's facing the outside of the building and there are windows mm. all the way down and as the moonlight is shining in through mm. you get you get basically dark light dark light dark light you mm. know, and that sort of speaks to the kind of visual storytelling that you associate with conan doyle that immediacy mm. of it's, it's, it's filmic yeah, it's filmic, absolutely, and and that's a really you know so so you know <laughs> you might get the sort of buckets of blood at one end, but you've mm. also got 
just the the hints, the makings of of mm. some subtlety in there as well. Mm. And, and I mean, these cliches obviously come through to to to, to the modern era. I mean, I think with 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 the, the dripping blood. Uh, I mean, you, you've you've got that in you know the house that dripped blood, or or the, the hammers, the house that bled to death. All these these cliches still come through, and but uh, it, it's it's using them knowingly. Yes. Uh, is 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 the key to it, and um, I mean it, it, it puts me in mind as, as as well of what we discussed in the the episode on the the silver mirror. Hmm. Um, we talk about the uh, Edinburgh Holyrood house that there's there's meant to be the the the, the blood stain on, on the, the floor, floor from the murder of David Rizzio. So yeah, that that's probably it's again this very sort of traditional folkloric yes yeah. element coming in here. And and later on with the, with this this whole idea of the kind of the indelible blood stain, he he reused it um, in his Regency novel Rodney Stone, published in eighteen ninety six, um, where you have young young Rodney and his his friend uh, Jim Harrison. So yes. again, it's it's two young men explore their local haunted house, uh, Cliff Royal, which has its own ghost, the Walker of Cliff Royal. Mm. Um, and this it's almost like this typical two young men daring each other on. To, to spend a night in in the haunted house, uh, and again this this house there's been um, a, a card party there. Yes, uh, that's gone wrong, and and um, one of the players has ended up cutting his own throat because of losses, uh, and so the, the the story builds up, and then you 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 actually do get very good description of when they hear something. I heard it too. A shuffling footstep in the room above, and then a creak from the steps, and then another creak, and another. I saw Jim's face, as if it had been carved out of ivory, with his parted lips and his staring eyes fixed upon the black square of the stair opening. He still held the light, but his fingers twitched, and with every twitch the shadows sprang from the walls to the ceiling, and still the step came slowly from stair to stair. Mm. It's, yeah, he's really learned his craft by this point. It, it is... Almost like he's taking the haunted Grange of Gorsthorpe and rewriting it. Yes, yeah, very much so. You, you, even later, he he's sort of still playing with some of the themes in Haunted Grange of Gorsthorpe, Bully of Brockus Court later. Mm. A similar kind of thing about um, a ghost being pursued by their victim. It seems quite an original element to have one ghost chased by another ghost. Yes, it does. Yeah, uh, and being terrified of you, you do get this again in in a very strange form in the Bully of Brockus Court. Yeah, very. Um, but but you don't get this much. I mean, the, the only modern example I could think of is is John Boyne's "This House Is Haunted." Yes, which has two fighting spirit, and it's it doesn't work. It's got to be handled where even Boyne cannot get it right, and it it, it it's again that that fall into what feels like parody. Yes. It's very, very easy to do, and and Doyle actually does, and particularly in Bully of Brockers Court, it it's handled brilliantly. Yeah, it's very, very well done. Yeah, and and as you're talking there about the uh, um, about Rodney Stone, it's put me in mind of you know Conan Doyle's own experiences with um, with haunted houses uh, when he was a, a new member of the Society for Psychical Research. The uh, the SPR was actually formed about 10 years earlier than that, around 1882, uh, after a, a conference was held in London 
um, to foster scientific research into the supernatural and and unexplained phenomena in much the same lines as we've just been talking about with the description in in, uh, Haunted and the Haunters. But in 1893, Conan Doyle joined the society and it's it's interesting to to look at when that happened um it was around january 1893 and at that time conan Doyle was in upper norwood he was actually the president of the upper norwood literary and scientific society and um he presided over a talk from professor wf barrett of the uh the spr and he he mentioned some interesting things in his introduction of um, W.F. Barrett, which is which were repeated in the in the local newspaper, in it Conan, Conan Doyle said he and a few friends felt it to be a reproach to to science that the inquiry into alleged psychical phenomena should be left to the ignorant and the charlatan. Some of the phenomena certainly seemed trivial and puerile, but not more so than many which exercised the minds of the early fellows of the Royal Society. I mean, it's an amazing statement, isn't it? It's already connecting. <laughs> Back to that idea that um, the supernatural is merely something that is yet to be discovered, yet to be yet to be explained. Um, so that was January 1893. He joined the society at the same time, uh, and he then went on to take part in a in an early sort of haunted house investigation um, a year later. Yes, yeah, so this this investigation uh, was one he carried out with with two fellow SPR members, um, Dr. Sidney Scott and Frank Podmore. Mm. Um, and it was um, a, 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 an Irish family um, had been experiencing, supposedly experiencing strange phenomena in their house. Yeah. Uh, and so the you know the the three investigators went went over there, spent a couple of nights in in Charmouth, set up all their the uh, paraphernalia of trip wires, etc. Mm. Um, and there's one point where where not a lot seemed to happen, uh, and then the, um, the 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 son of the house at one point said, "Oh no no, you mustn't go yet. You mustn't go yet. Things might happen." And then there was a, a large bang and. Uh, Things got a little bit more exciting, but still <laughs> not, uh, yeah, not, nothing too major happening, but enough to seem interesting. Um, but po- I mean, Podmore was a noted skeptic. Um, he really was, you know, took the, uh, the, the, the kind of the classic scientific approach to all this. Um, and um, Doyle, he later became uh, an opponent of Doyle during Doyle's real spiritualist uh, phase. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but at the time, or for, at one point, there was there was a maid in the house who was suspected by the, of, of being behind these mm. phenomena. Um, but then the suspicion turned towards the sun, um, and the report actually did make these suspicions of theirs obvious. Uh, and and Doyle agreed with with Podmore's conclusions on this. Later on, Doyle wrote, he, he, he wrote an account at the time in a letter to um, his literary mentor, James Payne, which followed these lines. Later on, we get two different accounts um, from Conan Doyle, one in Memories and Adventures, one in The Edge of the Unknown, mm. um, both of which are far more leaning towards the, uh, the, the side of these were real phenomena. Yes. There's something going on here. And then the house burned down. And then in the remains of the garden, a skeleton of a child was stuck. <laughs> again, we're going back to classic 
<laughs> sort of cliched material. It is, um, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think Podmore was obviously stuck with the original conclusions and and Doyle became more and more scathing Yes, uh, about Podmore's approach. The whole incident um, ended in acrimony, you know, decades later. Um, but it was it was Doyle's only experience of the haunted house investigation. But it obviously made a a, a real a real mark on him. Yes, I think it did. And you get, um, I mean, it puts me in mind of the uh, another haunted house investigation that he writes up in Land of Mist, um, where you get John Roxton going mm. into the house. And um, oddly enough, that similarly has a kind of buckets of blood feel to it, don't they? Because they go upstairs to a bathroom and where somebody had um, slit their wrists in. Yes, in yes, house, think, and it's a, kind of... a doctor is supposed to have, have lived in the house, and then it's it's the uh, I don't know where, whether he's it's, it's actual evil spirit or part of his the darker part of his spirit is is yes supposed to be in the house, and um, and so there's there's Ed Malone, Lord John Roxton, and um, a, 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 a mild clergyman. That's right. Go yeah. and investigate it, and yeah. and uh, Roxton thinks the best way to go about these things is by blasting the hell out of everything, <laughs> uh, and it's the mild mannered clergyman, of course, the spiritualist hero. Yes, who who lays the ghost to rest and and sh- shows that this is the way to combat evil spirits is is to bring them to the good and lay them yes in that way. Um, but um, <clears throat> interestingly, I mean that story itself uh, was based upon another supposed real life haunted house investigation, which was chronicled in Violet Tweedale's Phantoms of the Dawn. Mm. Um, and again, you you can see. Uh, where Doyle has taken the elements of that supposed real life yes. investigation and worked them into this 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 episode in the Land of Mist, and he, I mean, when Phantoms of the Dawn came out, um, Doyle supplied a forward yes. to the book, so he was definitely familiar, well aware with it, with yeah. the story. Mm. And I always think it's fascinating when you look at the description of the the evil malevolent spirit in uh, the Land of Mist. It's very similar to a description of a similar spirit in the middle of. The Haunted and the Haunters. Mm. Um, mm. So, you know, yet again, he's ch- channeling that book. I mean, mm. Conan Doyle's relationship with the SBR similarly ended in acrimony decades later, didn't it? I mean, he mm. and uh, his resignation letter to the SBR survives. Mm. I'll put a link to an article about this in the show notes. But essentially, you know, um, a, a review had appeared in the SBR journal by uh, a chap called Theodore Besterman that claimed that a series of sittings by an Italian medium uh, were fraudulent, and Conan Doyle believed that the phenomena couldn't be dismissed quite so easily, and got very upset with Besterman, um, not least because Besterman was not present. And um, Conan Doyle has had this long rumbling with the society about it being increasingly sceptical. And at this point, he he wrote a, a quite a fierce resignation letter in which he said that the uh, ass- the assertions of the opponents of spiritualism are at once accepted on their face value without the slightest attempt at discriminate examination. My only resource is, after 36 years of patience, to resign my own membership and to make some sort of public protest against the essentially unscientific and biased work of a society (laughs) which has for a whole generation produced no constructive work of any kind, but has confined its energies to the misrepresentation and hindrance 
of those who have really worked at the most important problem ever presented to mankind. But again, it's back to that old thing about, you know, scientific scientific method, proof, open mind. Um, you know, we're going back to those same sort of themes that we're seeing explored in in the Haunted Granger Gorsthorpe. And mm. this was 1930. Yeah, yeah well, it was just a month or so before his death when yeah. he resigned. That's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's really, I think, quite fascinating the way the, the, the haunted house is used. And this kind of, the, the haunted house, the idea has is, is never gone out of fashion. No. Um, it's again, as we've been discussing constantly, it's, it's, it's how you use these, these sort of tropes. Um, and you've, you've actually got at, at the time, um, that, that, that Conan Doyle is investigating the haunted house with the SPR, mm. you've also got a number of stories beginning to come through ghost stories, uh, with, with fictionalized psychic investigators <laughs> um i'm thinking of, of of characters like algernon blackwood's um john silence mm. uh, william hope hodgson's karnaki um and ian h heron's flaxman low and they all investigate haunted houses yeah. i mean particularly flaxman low and and the flaxman low stories originally appeared in pearson's magazine and they'd even have photographs Yes. Of, of the haunted houses to give very similitude to, uh-huh. to to the stories, so you get this this, this strange crossover of the fiction and that so the, the the kind of the psychic investigator real world mm. uh, is is um, going on at this time. Again, where we, we talk about um, Conan Doyle and Frank Podmore, Frank Podmore had actually investigated haunted houses with Algernon Blackwood. Yes. Um, and Blackwood's first um, published ghost story was was called uh, The Empty House mm. um, and was a reworking of one of his own experiences um, in, in investigating a haunted house. So this is all very much in the air yeah, at, at the, so. the time. Um, and also ghost stories are beginning to become more sophisticated. Yes. Again, William Hope Hodgson is, is doing these investigations in, in fiction with, with Karnaki. Mm. Um, but he also, in 1908, um, writes a book called The House on the Borderland. Yes. Which is a, yes. a, a variant on the haunted house story, where, where a haunted house in Ireland becomes an absolute focus of cosmic horror. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again, it, it, it's a really fascinating take on, on it. And, and um, like we've discussed with, with, with Doyle and his, his filmic descriptions, and I hope Hodgson does this, as well in in the house on the borderland, mm. so you you're getting this 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 coming in as as well as the the, the growth of at this time, the psychological ghost story, is is also coming in, which which is almost the antithesis of of, of the haunted Grange of Gorsthorpe, mm. where these are the, um, the the sort of stories where is it all in the narrator's mind or are the ghosts seen and i'm thinking particularly you've got this this developing actually in the um the 1860s with 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 people like charles dickens with the signalman um and um green tea by sherry lefanu yes uh and it's really perfected almost by by henry james in 1898 with the turn of the screw yeah so all of these things are, are, are are going on um, and, and again, if you go back and reread The Haunted Grange of Gorsthorpe, you also have to look at it in its time be- before 
these yes. sort of stories come into play. So Doyle is looking back at, at Bulwer-Lytton um, and, and more of those old, the hackneyed cliches, which, which are not being disposed of with the psychological ghost story, but being reworked in yes. a very, very different way. Yeah. And as we get close to time uh, on the podcast, I'd just like to circle back on on where we started, really, which was the idea of the Haunted Grange of Gorsethorpe being a, a very early piece of work, that probably the first mm. surviving um, submission to, to a publication uh, by Conan Doyle. And um, it's worth, I think, thinking a bit about, you know, who was it that encouraged Conan Doyle to start writing in the first place? In Memories and Adventures, he describes how he was encouraged to, to, to submit works by a friend. He says, some friend remarked to me that my letters were very vivid and surely I could write some things to sell. And then he goes on to talk about um, the mystery of Sasasa Valley. And that's led many people to think that the friend he's referring to there was uh, Rupert Hoare Hunter, who was the nephew of, of um, the doctor at Aston that he was apprenticed to in the late 1870s. Although there's a bit of an oddity in this idea that, you know, if you were working with somebody on a day-to-day basis, would you be getting vivid letters from them? <laughs> but another candidate is Willie Burton, who we mentioned earlier. And I think that's a really attractive idea. It ties us back to John Hill Burton and to John Blackwood. And uh, Owen Dudley Edwards was very keen on the idea that Haunted Grange may have been submitted by John Hill Burton to John Blackwood, and that this might also account for the lack of correspondence. That's an attractive idea. But I think the third candidate is is really interesting, is um, Jimmy Ryan. This is James Paul Emile Ryan, who was his... One and only friend at Stonyhurst, we're told, mm-hmm. was in the year below Conan Doyle, but was another Scot and actually was said to be of Glasgow and Ceylon. Hmm. Um, uh, that's because his grandfather had set up a tea plantation. Uh, Ryan eventually, in, in, in 1910, I think it was, would go on to actually manage the, um, the, the tea plantation in Ceylon, or Sri Lanka, as we call it now. Ryan is somebody who Conan Doyle corresponded with throughout their lives. Uh, Ryan died in 1920. And we actually have some of the letters in the British Library from Jimmy Ryan to Conan Doyle. We don't have Conan Doyle's letters to Ryan, but we do have the ones Conan Doyle received. And they're really interesting because they actually speak to two friends who can talk without any kind of filters because they've known each other for so long. And even though we only have one side of the story, we get lots of nice insights into it. It's clear that Conan Doyle shared story ideas with Jimmy Ryan because Jimmy Ryan comments on ideas for the Lost World and for the Poison Belt in his letters. Um, Jimmy Ryan was also a classical scholar and a linguist. And so a lot of the material that goes into Tales of Long Ago, Conan Doyle's great collection of historical vignettes, he's bouncing backwards and forwards ideas with Ryan all the time. And I think all of this speaks to the fact that Conan Doyle shared a very special connection to Jimmy Ryan. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Jimmy who was the one who was the real inspiration, who actually said to Conan Doyle, you know, you should really pick up your pen and start writing. And that's why I think at the end of Haunted Grange, you get this tacit nod to uh, Salon right at the end of that story. Yeah, I, I, I think <clears throat> that's, that definitely sounds sounds right to me, and particularly with the Salon reference. Uh, you got Tom, Tom, Jim. It's this 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 kind of Tom Holton, Jim Ryan. This, the the phonetics, yes, even you know are, are, are not dissimilar. So uh, I I would say the the others certainly I would think Willie Burton 
is playing a role. Yeah. Oh, completely. But Ryan is 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 I I I'm with you on that one. I think is the the the, the central character. Yeah. In this. Yeah. I wish we knew more about him, but <clears> sadly, <throat> sadly, a very difficult figure to find find out information on. Mm. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, if you want to find the show notes, you can read them at doingsofdoyle.com. And you can also find out there how to become a patron through Patreon or on PayPal. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please leave us a rating or review or a comment on the website. Um, it really helps to raise awareness of the podcast and to invite in new listeners. So, Paul, what are we looking at next time? Well, we're going to take a, 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 a slightly different approach uh, here we, we we're going to carry on the theme of of, of this podcast. We we are in the season of ghosts, so <laughs> we're actually going to be looking at um, one of Doyle's later stories called "Selecting a Ghost: The Ghosts of Gorsthorpe Grange," <laughs> in which he uses the same name but for very different purpose. Yeah. So that will be with you next month in time for the holiday season. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Hmm, does seem quite comfortable. Before you decide. I've already decided. But to take it. Oh. In that case, I feel it's only fair to warn you. Warn me? The former tenant. There were, um, tragedies. Are you trying to tell me that this house is haunted? Not exactly. Hmm. What a pity. <laughs>